0: You in Psalm 1? Yes, All right. Start with something pretty simple. Then we're going to hit two other Psalms. We've got a couple slides. Uh, yeah. Psalm 1, pretty simple stuff before we get a little deeper. Blessed is the man, verse 1, that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law doth he meditate day and night. This man shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. We all understand basic roots because we're human beings and we had some kind of level of science. But the first thing you see with mature Christians is that they are planted. You cannot hop from church to church and be mature. You cannot hop around or stream from home only and be mature. You have to be planted. Planted like a tree by rivers of living water. When you're planted... You are always going to have the sustenance you need no matter what comes. And that goes on to say, they'll bring forth your fruit in his season, and your leaf also shall not wither, and whatever you do shall prosper. One of the ways we can judge or evaluate our lack of success as a believer or even as a human being is if I'm failing, what are my roots doing? Deep rooted Christians don't fall over easy. Deep rooted Christians don't fall over easy. And concerning the kingdom, you should find a church that has deep soil. There are plenty of shallow soiled churches so that even if you wanted to go deeper, you would hit the pot, the pan, or the rock, and you would not be able to go any deeper. There are trees that are shallow rooted, a weeping willow. Salix is the species. Uh, The weeping willow, I knew because we had two big ones in our backyard, they thrive in very easy soil conditions, very shallow, very wet soils. So their roots are very extensive, but very shallow, and they always fall over. And you can't have a good storm around here to drive out in the country and you see a weeping willow split in half and knocked over and most of the roots go with it. Those trees that are deeply rooted do not fall over easy and they weather storms very easy. They weather droughts very easy. The deeper your roots, the more mature you're going to be. The more consistent your your fruit production will be. You show me a fruitful Christian, you don't even have to tell me what their root system looks like. You show me a green-leafed, Christian in time of spiritual drought, you don't even have to show me what their root system looks like. Likewise, you show me a fruitless Christian, I know exactly what their roots look like. You show me a, a shallow Christian, an easily offended Christian, uh, a Christian that struggles in life, you don't even have to tell me what their roots look like, I know exactly what their roots look like. According to the psalmist, according to basic botany, roots do it all. The other thing I learned in soil science 30 years ago, my my minor was in soil science, was that there's just as much tree underground as there is above ground. Just as much tree mass below ground as there is above ground. Now, that may not hold true to every tree, but it certainly holds true to the strong ones. So you show me a little pygmy Christian, I know exactly how much root mass they have underground. You show me a gigantic cedar tree of a Christian, I know exactly how much they got going underground. This is a pretty simple concept that we need to apply. So as a believer, ask yourself, where are you rooted? What are you rooted in? Are you rooted in the kingdom of God? Are you rooted in strong soil, rich soil? The other principle we could apply here concerning botany is not every plant flourishes in the same kind of soil. You happen to notice we don't have palm trees up here. You have to go further south to get into Georgia and the Carolinas and the coastal states before you can find a palm tree. They require sandy soils. You also don't find too many pine trees here on our level of the plateau called the Highland Rim, but when you get up to the plateau, you find a lot of palm trees because the bedrock up there is all Pennsylvania sandstone. That doesn't mean they imported it from Pennsylvania. That has to do with the age of the rock, the Pennsylvania era. And so it weathers to sandy soils, which are more acidic. Here we have more hard trees, hardwoods, because we're a limestone bedrock, which produces a clayey soil, which is a lot more a basic soil. There are the occasional pine trees, yes, but we're not known for pine trees here, but everybody has been up on the plateau knows it's full of pine trees. We also have a lot of cedar trees here, but they're not the cedars of Lebanon, regardless of the mislabeled Lebanese State Park. (laughs) Is that DeKalb County? Wilson County. Thank you. Those are juniper trees. The difference being a juniper tree has berries and real cedar trees have cones. But we call them Virginia junipers or excuse well, it is Virginia Juniper, we call them the red cedar, though it's not a cedar tree. So please get that through your Middle Tennessee thick skull. We don't have cedar trees here. We don't have cedar trees here. We have juniper trees here, but they sure do look a lot like a cedar tree and they smell like one too. We want to be rooted. So how well do you weather storms? Now, this is my church. I've been responsible for it for 16 years now. It's not a perfect church. I don't like everything about it. I am proud of it, but I don't like everything about it. But one thing I can tell you for sure is there's a deep soil here. But if you fall over, that ain't my fault. That's your fault. You're shallow. You calling me a shallow Christian? Yeah, I just did. I'll say it again. You're shallow. If there's a huge depth of soil whereby you could put down roots and be immovable, then if you fall over, you are shallow. So you have to decide where you're called and make sure you're planted there. Going back to what we were saying, not every tree is called to the same soil condition. It won't flourish. We are actually trying to grow a few biblical plants locally. They won't do as well because we don't have a Mediterranean climate like Israel does. I refuse to call it Palestine because Palestine is Greek for Philistines. Now, isn't it interesting? Israel today is still fighting the Philistines in the same territory that was the Philistine territory during Samson's era. There was a king, though, that maliciously called it Palestine to mock the Jews, 4th century, 5th century, something like that. That's why it's still called Palestine to this day. In the academic world, even in the theological world, they like to refer to it as Palestine, but my God calls it Israel. So one of my advisors on the book, a PhD guy, He read some of my manuscript. He said, do me a favor as a Christian. I said, yes, sir. He said, take the word Palestine out of your book. He said, that's an academic novelty. It's not biblically accurate. It's Israel. God called it Israel. The Bible calls it Israel. A nut job in the fourth or fifth century called it Palestine to mock God, and we've been doing it ever since. All right, I did feel really smart calling it Palestine over and over again in the early workings of the manuscript, but he was dead on accurate. Even to this day, it's not Palestine, it's Israel and the Gaza Strip. And that's not anti-Palestinian, it's not anti-Arab, it's just pro-Bible. Okay. So let's look at another Psalm now, I think that one, you figure out where you're called, and there's been plenty of folks that come to this church here and they visit and they come for a little bit and I realize... This isn't the soil for you. And that doesn't offend me. I know the kind of soil we are. I know what we can grow. And if we're not the soil for you, you need to grow somewhere else. But consequently, if you're called to this kind of soil, let's just call it a nice basic clay loam. If you're called to a nice basic clay loam and you want to go find some kind of acidic sandy, sandy loam, uh, you're going to suffer there. And yet Christians will choose a soil that they're not assigned to because it's easier for them. And then wonder why they have such pygmy fruit. I'm going to show you a slide here in a minute. It's going to blow your mind, but it's going to show you the fruitful ability of Israel, even to this day. You're called to produce massive fruit, but you have to be in the right soil condition. We're all farmers around here. Even if it's a backyard garden, you know we have to add stuff to the soil and we have to add ag lime or we have to add acid if we want our roses to grow or orchid orchid juice. You know, There's all these soil conditioners we do to produce maximum yield. Same for you as a Christian. God knows where he's called you. You don't get to change that calling for better weather. I totally reject the Michigander Yankee snowbird concept because you're going from glacial till to the sandy soils of Naples, Florida, out of the will of God. And the mature pastors I know that talk to about it just say, we just tolerate these people. We're just glad to have them when they're with us, knowing I'm not going to get them for the other six months. And I'm sure their pastor down in Florida feels the same way about them. Good for two things in the kingdom, not much. (laughs) How would you be as a plant if you spent half your year planted here as a plant, and we uproot you and then run you up to the plateau and plant you there for six months? You go back and forth like that for 20 years, what kind of tree is that going to be? Because you have to keep cutting roots to go back. This tells me those Americans, because it's an American construct, those Americans are more carnal and selfish-driven than they are kingdom-minded. It's usually an older generation who's been taught this as a culture and can't see the the unbiblicalness of it. Let's find another psalm. Psalm 92. We're just going to stay in the psalms this morning. I could easily take any one of the plants that I've researched and teach for several weeks on it, but I want to give you a simple flavoring of why it's important to understand the botany of the Bible. If you don't understand the botany of the Bible, that's okay. You're going to get other great things out of it. But it also presents a concept called scientific hermeneutics, which is not a traditionally held hermeneutic. Hermeneutics just means the laws of interpretation. And when you read your Bible, you're automatically using hermeneutics. You may not realize that you are. You're looking at the scriptures and you're interpreting it. You're figuring out, who are we talking to? That's contextual hermeneutics. What's being said? What's the reference to? What's the day that we're living in? That's a cultural hermeneutic. Uh, What does the Bible say about this in other chapters? That's a theological hermeneutic. You're automatically doing this, though you probably haven't officially been taught in the art of interpretation with biblical texts. So there's several hermeneutics, contextual, linguistical, syntactical, historical, cultural, Anyway, one that is hardly ever dealt with is called a scientific hermeneutic, which basically means if we understand the science of what's involved, we can make a better interpretation. We can extract more truth out of it. Because certainly the, the inspirer, the author of the Bible, God, knew exactly why he selected cedar tree and not juniper tree or willow tree or you name it. He understood that. And that's why it is important. We, the closest we might get to a scientific hermeneutic on our own is what we might call an agricultural hermeneutic or a cultural hermeneutic. When you understand plowing, when you understand seed time and harvest, we all have a basic understanding of that. That's technically a scientific hermeneutic. We get it. Oh, you sow a seed, and then you got to water it, and I'm pretty sure Grandma said you got to get the weeds away from it, and then you got to let it grow. When we read that in its setting, we're automatically understanding things. To give you an example of why this is important, I was one time, I stumbled upon a Catholic blog, and I somehow ended up at the questions, and the the priest or the father was, it's a great blog, it was out of um, either Singapore or Hong Kong, I can't remember. It was Chinese, Asia, and one of the questions that the priest was asked in this blog and the questions and answers was, what exactly is the grape? What exactly is a grape? And now you and I are like, what? (laughs) Sorry. What is what? What is a grape? What is a grapevine? And then to hear the priest reply, and I'm not making this up, it's a couple years ago. The priest replied, as I understand it, it's a kind of vining plant that produces a berry like fruit called grapes. And it seems to grow along things you could tell that in their culture they had no understanding of grapes or viticulture or vineyards or winemaking, which also means in the concept of reading those passages in the Bible, it's going to be blank. Just like other famous missionaries have traveled the world and tried to explain he is the good shepherd, and they've never seen a sheep in their life. So one missionary uh, explained it as a fisherman. He is the good fisherman which only went so far because you catch fish and eat them. You don't care for them like you would <laughs> sheep. <laughs> so that's why you just back up and say, all right, let's explain what shepherding and sheep are like. Even us don't have much of an idea about sheep unless we were in 4-H because Tennessee is not really known for sheep. Amen. So Psalm 92, you there? The note on this psalm that probably is in most of your Bibles. says a psalm or song for the Sabbath day. So why do we write this, David? For the Sabbath day. This is how we sing. So let's just read it, because we're not going to get a lot of Scripture in this morning, but we'll get some here. It's a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord, and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night, upon an instrument of ten strings, sorry, Church of Christ, and upon the psaltery, sorry, Church of Christ, upon the harp with a solemn sound, Sorry, Church of Christ. For thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. A brutish man knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. When the wicked spring as the grass. ha We get this. We get it. Grass grows up, and it burns really easy, too. It grows up, and it doesn't really do more than just grow, produce seeds, and then regrow. And... Here we manicure our yard so it grows and we cut it. And you know when your neighbor hasn't cut their grass long enough because the seeds start coming up and their yard looks kind of furry like moldy bread. We get this because we have grass. So we automatically interpret this pretty accurately. When the wicked spring up as the grass, you don't have to take care of grass. It's just going to do its thing. And they're not talking about manicured fescue, not Kentucky 31 fescue, not bluegrass. This is wild grass grass that then would easily burn in the fall when it died out. And when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, so there's a discouragement here. Like, why, why? Why do they flourish? Why do they grow so easily? You don't even have to tend them, and they just take over everywhere. He says, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. So don't feel bad, and don't long to be like them. They're going to be destroyed forever. You would burn off grasses in ancient Israel. You'd burn it back once you... And in, in, in between the fallowing of the fields, grass would take over the field, burn it back, plow it under, and go on with it. So in the Bible, you don't want to be grass. The wicked are grass. Don't be like grass. No maintenance, no help, no really much of anything. But thou, O Lord, art most high forever, for lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for... Uh, For lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. My eye also shall see my desire on mine enemies. And my eyes shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. Verse 12, in contrast to verse 7, the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. So let's look at a picture here. Here are some palm trees. Do not think Florida palm. Don't think Hawaiian palm. Those are coconut palms. This is a date palm. Phoenix dactylifera is the scientific name. These are palm trees in the desert, an oasis. They grow at the Dead Sea, which has an elevation of minus 1,400 feet, lowest place on the planet. So they grow in the desert. The Arabs say that they have their feet in heaven and their head in hell. Feet are in heaven, the roots, because that's where the water is, and their heads in hell. That's where the sun is. And these guys can convert even brackish water to two or three hundred pounds of sugar dates. Pretty amazing that they can take brackish, salty water and make two and three hundred pounds of pure sugar out of it. That's why it talks about they'll flourish. So those dates have a date pit in it. Those date pits would then drop or fall, tumble, and replant. And now all of a sudden, one date palm tree can become an oasis just like this. And you have these throughout the Middle East, especially in ancient times, because the Bedouins would survive. In fact, um, archaeology and history says that if it weren't for the date palm, the Bedouins could not inhabit the Arabian desert because they allowed the sugar and the nutrients. And when they would spit their dates out, riding in a camel caravan, you could potentially produce an oasis there if there was enough water to cause that seed to germinate and produce a palm tree. So really, you're, you have human pollination or human spreading of date palms around the Arabian desert. Also, the saying is, an Arab expression is, there's many uses of the date palm tree as there are days in the year. And in the book, I have a massive list of about 25 or 30 things. You can make rope out of it. You can make housing out of it. You can make a, a salad out of the date heart. Of course, the date palms, they, I even have a research paper that they're currently testing to see if you can use the rachis, which is the spine of the palm branch, as a building material, a sustainable building material. Then when they're especially erect and upright, you can make timbers out of it and cut it down. You can tap it for water. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of uses. They actually do call it a veritable tree of life. And he says, we're not like grass. Righteous people are a tree of life. We can help anybody some way or another. Pretty cool. If you don't understand the botany of the Bible, you just read through it. Yay, palm trees. I love the beach. Next, cedar trees. Got one of those on Pappy's farm. I think we got fence posts made out of cedar. Those cedar trees are this big. The cedars of Lebanon are as big around as one section of our chairs. So different kind of cedar. Also, the Bible lets us know that this, uh, the palm tree comes to represent elders. Isaiah tells us as much, the head and the tail, and we don't have time to go on that. We talked about that a few weeks ago in passing. But the elders, especially in Exodus, They came to the 70 palm trees at Elam, where there were 12 pools of water. The 70 palm trees answered the 70 elders of Israel, which became the Sanhedrin. But palm trees are very much like church leaders, church elders. They stand taller than everybody. They provide shade for everybody. They drop dates and provide sustenance for everybody. Mature elders signify to the traveling wanderer ready to die, if you can make it here, you can live. So we want our elders to be wonderful testimonies for any local church. And yet the elder can only flourish because there's an oasis there to begin with. We also make note that even at this oasis here in the Negev, which is the uh, Egyptian desert, well, Israeli-Egyptian desert, that not every palm tree is the same height. So I want to be very clear on that too. Even in an eldership, an elder board, a presbytery, not every elder is of equal strength or equal height. There's always a pecking order. Even among deacons, there's always a pecking order, and elders should be aware of that, that am I the best elder in this church, or am I the little pygmy one to the bottom right? And then at the same time, if you're not an elder, you ought to aspire to be one that you might help others, that you ought to produce fruit that blesses others. Uh, What else can we say? They signify from a great distance off. There's water here. If you'll dig a little bit deeper, there's going to be dates here so many uses. What does he say about the next tree? If you're righteous, you'll flourish. So these break out everywhere. They say one of the archeological finds is they think they have found Elam, which is in the time of Moses had 70 palm trees. And today it's a veritable forest of palm trees because they just keep dropping dates if it's the right location. And now it produces a massive forest. Today in Israel they are date plantations because they need the food, the medjool dates, which most of you probably had. You should get some on your way home because they're delicious. But uh, you go from 70 to a forest of dates because they flourish, and so do the righteous in a place nothing else grows. Here's the cedar of Lebanon. One of the last remaining ones actually in Lebanon. There are a couple old growth stands. This was called the the Goliath or the, the grandest tree of the ancient world. It is a little bit different than the palm tree. We should go back. The palm tree can grow to be 100 feet tall. And the Cedar of Lebanon can be 150 feet tall. They both grow about a foot a year when they hit their stride, and they max out, at a, you know, start to slow down in their old age. So it is interesting, we contrast, or at least the psalmist does, the date palm with the Cedar of Lebanon, or Cedrus Lebanon. I always like to make the joke, I read it, it looks like Cedrus Lebani, but it can't be Cedrus Lebani. He went the third round in the draft to the <laughs> New Orleans Pelicans, I guess. This is Cedrus Lebanai, or the cedar of Lebanon, massive tree. But I think you notice something very quickly, the environment. This is 9,000 feet in Mount uh, Horeb in the north, the sides of the north. And this is maybe 1,000 feet below sea level in a desert. So in this one verse in the psalm, you have two extremes. The Dead Sea in the southern portion of Israel, because the southern portion of Israel is very low in its elevation, and then as you move north into Lebanon, you begin to climb in elevation. So one grows in the lowest, lowest parts of the desert with very little water, and the other one grows in the highest parts of the Lebanese mountains, the mountains of Lebanon, at a very high elevation, very shallow soil, and what's even more ironic with this guy, the Lebanese cedars flourish on limestone rock. They flourish on limestone rock. Shallow soils, you give them a crack in some limestone and they're going to come up. And they have a tremendous root system and they actually pulverize the rock and can reclaim the rock into a fertile mountainside. Now they were multiple times almost nearly deforested because the kings of the ancient world wanted these because only a king could cut these down. Again, imagine trees as big in diameter or surface area crosscut area, like one of our middle sections of chairs here. You can make a lot of wood out of that. 150 feet tall. They don't require a lot of rain, though they do get rain up there in Lebanon because their pine needles, or what we would call just needles, evergreen needles, actually harvest moisture out of the atmosphere, which is really cool. They're considered a modified leaf, but they harvest Mediterranean Mediterranean climate. They harvest humidity out of the atmosphere, and because they're evergreen and don't ever shed their leaves, they grow year-round. So they, they are an intense tree. But it's interesting, and the point of the psalmist is, if you are righteous, you can flourish in the desert and be fruitful, and if you're righteous, you can flourish at 9,000 feet without any rain and be majestic. So then we take that and apply it to us, ourselves. Why are we not flourishing? Are you righteous? Well, verse 13 tells us what causes the righteous to flourish at low elevations with no rain and intense heat and at high elevations with little to no rain and nothing but rock. Verse 13, those that be planted. Oh, sounds like Psalm 1. Oh, we're back to carnal Christians being church hoppers and kingdom tramps, hopping from church to church, looking for the easy route. This is just like Psalm 1. You have to be planted. Where? Well, in the house of the Lord. That doesn't mean underwear church with a stream. In the house of God, the house God has called you to. As Moses said, the house God has called his name for you. Not everybody's called to engrafted word church. Not everybody's called to First Baptist Church. Not everybody's called to Stephen Street. But wherever you're your God has called you, and his name is there for you. That's where you're planted, and that will cause you to flourish in the desert or flourish on the Rocky Mountaintop. But the key is that you have to be planted in the house of the Lord your God. They shall flourish in the courts of our God. Now, now, what are you saying, David? Not every believer flourishes in church? Nope, not at all. Not every Christian. Can you imagine a Christian failing to flourish in church? And yet, ask any pastor... Just because we run 100 people, 200 people, or 10,000 people, not everybody that comes to church flourishes at church, because not every one of them is planted. It would be awesome if every believer could flourish in the courts of their God. You think if there's any place a believer would flourish, it would be in church. But this verse tells us and alludes to the fact that it's not so. But if you will be planted, and the way you know you're planted is that when it comes time to move, it's hard. It's difficult. It's difficult. It has to be done with proper protocols and proper techniques because your roots run so deep. If you can easily walk away from something, you were never connected to it, or you hadn't been connected to it a long time. Like you think of a divorce, when somebody can just walk away and not cry, the divorce didn't happen the day the papers were signed. The divorce happened years prior. Same with the local church. If you can just walk away out the back door... You were never planted or your roots began to rot at some point. Now think about transplanting a tree with rotten roots. I don't want any tree coming to this church, bringing rotten roots with them. There's a lot of uh, simple tools where you have a thing in Japanese, is tool called a hori-hori, and you take roots and you cut the dead roots off of it before you even bother to plant it. And I think the Christian church in America could do well to be a lot more selective in who we allow to join our church. Even doctors are selective as who they take as patients. Even some doctors say, I, I can't even do this. I don't even want to cut you open. You have to. I don't have to do anything. Lawyers are selective. Psychologists. There's something wrong when a psychologist looks at you and says, I, no. Let me recommend a guy I don't like. Here. Because <laughs> we don't want root rot in our soil base. Whatever rotted you might be a fungus that could spread to the healthy plants wherever you decide to plant your rump. And just because your rump's planted doesn't mean your heart is. That's why it's so critical you figure out where God has called you and you put down roots. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. Here's another truth. Just because somebody is fruitful when they're 40 doesn't mean they're still fruitful for God in their 70s. Unfortunately. And as a Christian, you're to be fruitful to the day you take your last breath. I like this verse because it promises that you can still be fruitful and doing great things. They shall be fat and flourishing. That does not mean chubby. That means prosperous and flourishing. To show that the Lord is upright, He is my rock, like the cedar tree loves the rock, be planted on it, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. So, a lot of things to extract there. What's my next thing? Vineyards. Psalm 128. Psalm 128. This will be our... Well, this is not true. These will be our last plants. Psalm 128. We'll read these verses here. Blessed is every man that fears the Lord, that walks in his ways, for thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. This is a promise only for those who walk in the ways of God and fear him. You'll be happy and it will be well with you. Once again, a Psalm that we can use to examine ourselves. Am I unhappy? Do I walk in God's ways? Is it not so well with me? Am I consistently walking in God's ways? The Christian life is not an easy one, but when we walk with God, he makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. So some Christians come to church, but they suffer calamity and heartache and hardship perpetually. And the reason is because they are not flourishing in church. They're coming great, but they're not flourishing. I use the example from working at Lowe's. I worked inside lawn and garden, got good at outside lawn and garden. We always had the plants in the springtime that came with the root ball. People would come and buy these plants, and they would take them home with them. All we could do with them at Lowe's is water them on the concrete pad. The idea was you take these plants home, and you dig a hole for them in your yard, and you plant them, and then they get bigger. They grew to the size they were planted at the nursery, probably in McMinnville. McMinnville has a lot of nurseries. But the second you upplant them and uproot them, and you wrap them in a burlap sack with a little metal cage around it, and you root ball them, they're growth is put on pause they all stay alive but their growth is neutralized until they get home and get planted they will never grow again so think about the guy or gal who goes and buys 20 trees takes them home hooray they have a new home and she digs holes for 12 of them but leaves the other eight propped up against her barn they're in the yard but they're not flourishing but I'm in the yard. I've been brought home. I have a new house. I have a new yard. Or maybe she dug 20 holes, but only 12 of them were actually planted. Now, granted, that's her problem, not the plants. But you and I, we have a free will. So we choose whether we hop on over to the hole God has dug for us and put down our roots, take off our root bag. The worst thing you can do is God's called you to a place and you start pulling a root bag around yourself while you're still there. That's a pretty common constraint or a pretty common Christian experience, practice. And then, then the retarded person starts saying, I'm just not getting fat here. Well, you idiot. You unlawfully and illegally had your heart stolen and you pulled a root bag over your roots. When you're called to a place, you're called to absorb everything God has in that soil for you. And let the power of God act as osmosis and keep anything out that you're not supposed to take in. But some folks just think they're smarter than God and now they're just abiding their time. I ain't getting fat here anymore. Honey, you don't get fed anywhere you go. Verse three. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine in by the sides of thy house, or inside your house. King James says by the sides, but the Hebrew reads, inside your house or in your house. Your children like olive plants round about thy table. So here we have this blessing, and the Lord relates it to the head of home in terms of horticulture. In this case, oleoculture and viticulture. Olives and grapes, two very critical fruit in the life of Israel. Olives are a fruit. Pretty cool. They produce oil. Only fruit known other than avocado, but it takes a lot more work. To squeeze an olive, you produce oil that can be burned. Can you imagine you squeeze a fruit, it produces oil, and you can burn that oil? Pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. It wasn't until about the 4th or 5th century AD that olives were then eaten as a food because they couldn't figure out how to debitter them. It was a Roman process that was developed. So you don't ever see olives spoken of as a food. They're always grown to provide light or oil for baking. That's the whole reason olives are so critical. But back to, uh, to the, f- the vineyard here. So this is of this is actually a vineyard in the Middle East. They are able now, I've got a research paper I've just pulled, or it's in the queue to pull. They're growing vineyards in the Negev uh, like they did a thousand, two thousand years ago in the straight desert because of what the vineyard is able to do. But they don't cut them out in trellises like we see here because they have such direct heat, it gives them too much sun. It causes sunburn on the leaves. So let them grow as a little tree like this so the canopy can act as protection. But long story short, this is a a current vineyard in the the, uh, area of Israel, the Levant. And you see how big a clusters can be grown. This guy won the award 15, 20 years ago for biggest grape cluster in Israel. And now you know why the spies with Joshua and Caleb came and they had to carry the cluster on a pole in between their shoulders. And they named that town Eskel, which means big cluster. <laughs> or maybe in Hebrew, whoa, oh mama. But look at how big that is. that's why we've got that. So when it talks about your wife shall be as the fruitful vine in the size of your house, it talks about her being able to grow and produce fruit because that's what vineyards do. No matter where you plant her, she grows and produces fruit. It really speaks of marrying the woman who has a tremendous work ethic and wants to be a blessing in your house. Grapes were critical to the Israeli diet. They provided grape juice for juice, grape juice that became wine. It provided raisins for sustenance. Some grapes were also eaten. You can also produce an oil out of the seeds. This was a critical component of the Hebrew diet Uh, Archaeological digs say that they estimated that almost every meal in ancient Israel consisted of some form of grapes because of the seed pips they have found at these uh, archaeological digs. So very critical for a wife to be fruitful. Around the sides of your house, it also represents that she needs some constraint. She needs pruning. You don't let your wife just grow all over you. You don't let her run the show. Sorry if that uh, kind of cross plows your feminist post-revolutionary tendencies, but Truth be told, the grapevine, the common grape, Vitis vinifera, is a weed. It's an invasive species. It kills anything it touches, even trees. It will kill a tree. And it sounds like an unrestrained feminist. You marry an unrestrained feminist, she'll kill your marriage. She'll ruin your household. She'll make it miserable to come home. Anything you got growing, she'll crawl all over and crush it. The way, oh, So how does a vine, a, vine, a grapevine, how does it kill a tree? Well, it has this tendency. They don't understand yet, not that I've discovered in the research papers. It grows towards upright objects, telephone poles, trees, because it wants to vine up. It'll, it'll find anything that's upright and authoritative. Sounds like the Jezebel bush. Anything sh- the vine can grab a hold of to pull itself up on. So, it does it on telephone poles. That's why we have to make trellises so that it goes up and then grows across. And then, what happens with a tree? If a tree is nearby, it'll grow up that tree, fill out the canopy of the tree, compete for sunlight. Its roots will compete with the tree. And with heavy weight, it'll begin to break the branches off that tree. And it'll just keep climbing up over it and up over it until eventually the tree, which is a much larger species of plant, is dead and good for nothing. Sounds like that controlling woman who is not restrained, who's not kept in check, she must be restrained or the grapes will take over and kill anything and everything. Think of her as berry-producing kudzu. (laughs) Nobody likes kudzu. Now, if it had some kind of other usefulness other than ground control that they brought over in the World's Fair at like 1890 from China, that's when China started doing its thing. 1890, 1894 World's Fair, they introduced kudzu as erosion control. The billy goats can't get enough of it and it just keeps growing. That's all fact. What I just told you is all fact. And women, will pick on guys, but women can be that way if they're not restrained. It's human condition. We're not picking on women for women's sake, but even the curse in the garden says your desire will always be to master your husband and he will rule you. So keep in mind, you got to have restraint, but it also says your children will be like olive plants. Let me back up. say this about Grape vines. When you keep a grapevine pruned or trained, as it's called, it allows, it allows all of its energy to be put into fruit production. You can waste the same energy growing vines and leaves and vines and leaves. And the more vines and leaves it grows, the smaller its grapes get. But you keep it plucked back and pruned back like this. Those are some pretty thick vines. All of its energy now from an extensive root system will be put into the grapes. And the grapes will get bigger and bigger and juicier and juicier. Or just let it grow unchecked. And it'll begin to be nothing but vines and no fruit, which is the feminist, which is the Jezebel wife. She grows, grows, grows and has zero fruit that pleases God. But the reason she's that way is because she has an Ahab as a vine keeper. So Ahab has to grow a spine, learn his voice and say, honey, I need to prune you because we want to be fruitful. Because the psalmist said, he promised me my wife would be as a fruitful vine, not a killing vine. Fruitful. Maybe underline in your Bible, fruitful. But grapes produce, vines produce grapes because they're pruned every season. And there's some fruit of it. So here it says, and your children will be like olive shoots or olive sprigs or olive suckers round about thy table. So now we're dealing with Olea which is the common olive, which is the olive of the Middle East. It produces, it can reproduce through seeds. Of course, uh, it'll produce 20,000 or so olives on a tree, which is a lot about 70 liters of oil per fully grown tree. So you can drop those olive pits and grow, but olives grown from olive pits don't have very good fruit production. Just the botany behind it. So the primary way they reproduce olive trees is it will produce shoots at the base. And they'll let those get so big, then they'll cut them and transplant them. And those are guaranteed to produce fruit just like the parent plant. So when the psalmist says, your children will be like olive shoots around your table, it's talking about reproducing who and what you are. And at some point, you will transplant them, and they'll go be their own beautiful plant somewhere else. So I found this really cool picture. They allowed them to grow up. It's like some of the 35-year-olds in this church. They allowed them to grow up and never transplanted them into their own livelihood. But you can see they're getting thicker and thicker And they've made this topiary, which is really cute and creative, but you see what happens when you don't prune a shoot. Also in the oleoculture of it, to maintain the health of the parent olive tree, you have to prune those suckers. And why do we call them suckers? Because they suck the livelihood out of you, which is exactly what a 30-year-old living at home is doing. God's honest truth, this is the botany behind it. This is just a creative thing. It's the only picture I've ever found in all of the Google land of this kind of thing because everybody knows you don't do that. You're gonna kill the parent tree. But it's a fun little thing and this will affect the fruit production of the actual olive tree. But think of it. You have your children around your table, these reproductive suckers coming out of you that gather around you and you look at them and you know one day it'll be time to cut you off and transplant you in life to produce the same thing I have produced. It's beautiful. It's a really cool example. All right. Now, last one I want to do, because to me this is just the coolest. Go to Isaiah 63 real quick. Of course, there's how you make grapes, juice. So we'll keep that up there, Isaiah 63. Last cool thing. Let's talk about the wine press of God's wrath. For all the seeker-friendly Christians that are looking for a cool Christian coffee bar, I mean church, you have to know our God is an all-consuming fire. And there is a promise of messianic promises that has not yet been fulfilled that he will destroy his enemies, not love them, not embrace them, not hug them. He will destroy them in the wine press of his wrath. The wine press of his wrath. And the image is just this. He will stomp them into oblivion. Katie, can we pull this up in uh, the New Living Translation? And let me read this because it it reads pretty well or reads better. And we can uh, pull that down real quick. We may go just a little bit longer this morning. It is, after all, Botany Sunday. And and I've spent almost three years working on this book. And today's the day. Isaiah 63. Let's begin in verse 1. New Living Translation. If you have an app, hop on it. I hope you have a Bible. You should have a Bible so you can mark it up something about having a Bible. Heaven still uses scrolls. There's nothing about digital tablets in heaven, so don't, don't be lazy like that. Well, that seems judgy. It is judgy. I'm judging you so you don't get condemned later. I want you to be a better student of God's Word. Isaiah 63, verse 1, New Living Translation. You ready, Katie? Who is this who comes from Edom from the city of Basra with his clothing stained red? Who is this in royal robes marching in his great strength? It is I, the Lord, announcing your salvation. Wait, you you come and you're stained with blood? Salvation costs something, you know. It is I, the Lord, who has the power to save. Why are your clothes so red as if you have been treading out grapes? That's what we briefly saw. I have been treading the winepress alone. No one was there to help me. In my anger, I have trampled my enemies as if they were grapes. In my fury, I've trampled my foes. Their blood has stained my clothes. Now, this is about the eschatology, the eschaton, the end of all things. This is the battle of Armageddon prophesied in Isaiah 63. Uh, um, Joel talks about it. We're not going to get to his prophecy. says the same thing. We're going to look at John the Revelator here in a minute. This is the Lord coming to deliver Israel. But to deliver Israel, he has to destroy his enemies. But to destroy his enemies, he stomps them to death. And that's why this image is so important. Verse four, For the time has come for me to avenge my people, to ransom them from their oppressors. Again, I am pro-Israel. Let me be very clear on this. I am pro-Israel because it fulfills prophecy. But I do not ignore the fact that Israel is a very secular nation. Tel Aviv is considered one of the gayest friendly cities in the world. And Israel is considered the gay central heartbeat of the Arab world. That isn't a hard thing to do when the rest of the Arab world's pushed gays off buildings. They also have a more liberal abortion policy than the U.S. does. So I am pro-Israel, but they are not a righteous people. Now, there are devout Jews there, and there are devout Christians there, and there are devout Muslims there. But I want to be very clear on this. Yes, they have enemies, and they will have enemies, and they will serve, not the Messiah, until he comes again. For the time has come for me to avenge my people, to ransom them from their oppressors. I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. To me, that says there'll come a time when everybody retreats from defending Israel. Right now, all of Europe is behind Israel, as is the U.S. There is a pressure, though. Even our own Democratic Party is now split between who's pro-Palestine and who's pro-Israel. That pressure will build and build until, if I'm accurate in this interpretation, nobody will support Israel anymore. It will no longer be cool. So I myself stepped in to save them with my strong arm, and my wrath sustained me. I crushed the nations in my anger and made them stagger and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. I will tell of the Lord's unfailing love. Well, Chris Tallman doesn't write songs about that. (laughs) Neither does Bethel. But there it is. All right. So go to Revelation 14 real quick. and Let's read this in the NLT. Revelation chapter 14. We'll begin in verse, let's see, verse 17, Revelation 14, 17, New Living Translation. After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with a sharp sickle, swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of the grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. This is wicked judgment, bad judgment. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. So this is, dist- this is a- an allegorical, I think literal description of the battle of Armageddon when God brings in all the enemies of Israel to the valley of Armageddon outside Jerusalem and destroys them, and their blood flows like a river, 180 miles long. And horses bridle, let's say four feet deep, it's quite a river of human life. So let's go back to the, my picture real quick of the wine press of God's wrath. So this picture here is kind of what we would think of when we think of a winepress, European with a half of a barrel. And this is not the biblical idea. That's a wine press, and you would stomp on it, which is what we saw there in Isaiah when he says, why is your robe red? And actually, the revelation says, too, the Lord comes in his robe, his vestures are dipped in blood. Whose blood? Human blood, the wine press of his wrath blood. That is not what biblical wine presses look like. That is a biblical wine press carved out of rock, and you would crush it in the main area. Then the juices would flow over to the Pot to the right, and it would collect and then further flow off site to where it would be collected in vases. So you have this stone wine press. Don't think of the Italian one, or if you've ever been to a vineyard or a winery and you did a little tour and stepped on grapes, that is a wine press. It's just not a Bronze Age Israel wine press. So see this that even understanding winemaking and grapes helps us understand some of these allegories that the Lord is literal. He will stomp. Now, the other picture with the wine press is that in Israel's day, stomping out grapes was a time of great rejoicing. They sang psalms, they worshiped God, they rejoiced. It was a time of festival because the grape harvest is in, God has blessed us. We have been delivered from starvation and privation and we're gonna have prosperity because we got grape juice. Grape juice could then be distilled down to a syrup that could be stored for a long time or made into wine on the spot. It was a time of celebration. So when the Lord says, I'm gonna show up and stomp grapes, it's a a time of celebration. Again, not the huggy Jesus of the seeker friendly movement, with a hot latte and skinny jeans and purple lights, but the God of the Bible nonetheless. Now, let me give you the big ShamWow. Go to Genesis, because to me, this is so powerful. By ShamWow, I just mean the really cool thing that your heart never saw, and you say, oh, Jesus, you're so good to me. Genesis chapter 49. We remember that when Jesus came, he came into Israel riding on a donkey, the foal of an ass, or the cult of an ass. I can't keep it straight because I don't know animal husbandry well. And he fulfills Zechariah's prophecy. We saw a couple weeks ago the Talmud said he would come into town. Messiah would come into town riding on a donkey because Moses put his family on a donkey, and they saw the typology there. So we know the fulfillment of Christ. His, his first advent is defined By him riding on a donkey. That's cool. Because it's a lowly, meek animal. And then we see his second advent is him showing up and treading down his enemies. Almost like Jehu calling out to Jezebel. Her servants push her out the window and Jehu on his horse tramples her to death. Almost a very similar typology or symbolism. Here in Genesis 49... This is Jacob prophesying over the patriarchs about their destiny. Verse 8, Judah. This is the prophecy of Joseph over Judah and what will become of Judah. We know that all of Israel's kings come from Judah. So that's why this family is special. Thou art he, verse 8, thy brethren shall praise. thy, Thy hand shall be in the neck of thy enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. And the prey, my son, thou art gone down. From the prey, my son, thou art gone down. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as an old lion, whom shall rise him up? That means he's going to be a violent, vicious leader. And he was. All the kings of Israel came from Judah, and they led wars. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's why Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. David was of the tribe of Judah. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Well, that's cool because Jesus is our lawgiver. Until Shiloh come... "...and until him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass his colt unto his choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of his grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk." So Israel is always referred to as the vine. Once you hit the Psalms, and the major prophets. Israel takes on this allegory that it's the Lord's vine. That's why Jesus said the Lord's vineyard. So what I find fascinating, and hopefully you can see it, all the way back in Genesis, when Joseph is praying over the patriarchs as they're going into Egyptian territory, he says, Judah will produce all the kings. Judah will tie his kingly donkey to the vine, the choice vine. That's the nation of Israel. That's what Jesus did. And he will do so until he washes his garments in the vine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. That's the second advent. So what you see in this verse is a prophecy of both the first advent and the second advent of Jesus Christ. Seen 1,800 years before Christ. He rides in on a donkey, committing himself to Israel. And the next time we see him, he washes his garments in wine that is the blood of grapes. And his eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk is a Hebraism for wrath, gritting his teeth in anger, his eyes in a furious rage. His asses colt talks about this tender young donkey, which is in contrast to a man killing his enemies and washing his clothing in their blood. So... Okay, that ShamWow was a dud. I'm sorry, I studied this for a long time. And when I hit upon that, it made me cry because I thought, my gosh, you can't fabricate this typology. You can't make it up that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, they didn't know him as Jesus here. They knew him as the promised one would come and Jesus checks both these boxes. Well, the next one hasn't been checked yet. That's when Israel has to be delivered because all the nations of the world are, have either avoided them or are now against them. Amen.